What the hell just happened? What just happened? Go live. I think I might be live at Rockfin. Rockfin is a very difficult platform to use uh, for me right now. I'm still learning it, but I think that we are, we should be live. Okay, great. Um, let me just see what's going on there. Account, I cannot tell what's going on. Here we go. Okay, now we're live and I can see the chat. All right, well, welcome everybody um, to Rockfin. Welcome to Foreign Agents. I'm here with Marcy Smith Parenti, who has done some incredible work on two issues that I think are essential to talk about today. Um, the first one is that we're going to talk about is Gene Sharp, who's someone who's been widely praised in progressive media as a guru of nonviolence, a kind of theoretician in the vein of Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. But he's someone who I realized is enormously influential, if not the most influential figure in helping to devise the tactics of NATO backed or US regime change operations. And then we're going to switch gears pretty rapidly to Marcy's latest piece, which is at the gray zone right now, thegrayzone.com, And it's called, why won't the US medical establishment believe women? COVID-19 vaccines do not warn about menstrual disruption. And that discussion would be completely forbidden on YouTube um, under the on the grounds of misinformation, even though nothing is false about her essay. So it's important that we have a platform like Rockfin to discuss this. Uh, welcome to all four people currently watching, but I know that number is going to grow. Um, I want to get started actually, Marcy, before I bring you in by playing some uh, a clip of Gene Sharp, this figure who has influenced so many of the people we write about at the Gray Zone. And who, uh, when we talk about people we write, we mean US assets in countries like Nicaragua or Venezuela who are regime change assets, essentially. Let's listen to what Gene Sharp says about his theories here. I think it's very revealing. People sometimes speak of nonviolence, which is not a word I like, too vague, sloppy, et cetera, et cetera. Nonviolence and then there's armed struggle. And of course, everybody knows armed struggle is more effective because you've got something to fight with and you've got nonviolence, you've got the absence of something. I say nonviolent struggle is armed struggle. And we have to take back that term from those advocates of violence who try to justify with pretty words that kind of combat. Only with this type of struggle, one fights with psychological weapons social weapons, economic weapons, and political weapons. And that this is ultimately more powerful against oppression, injustice, and tyranny than violence. So those are some pretty uh, 
provocative comments from Gene Sharp. He's saying that nonviolence, his tactics, are actually a form of combat. Now, in your essay, I think what you do that a lot of people who praised him on his death uh, several years ago don't do is you point out that those tactics of combat are directed against a very specific target. So here's your piece at Nonsite, and you call you call it Gene Sharp's neoliberal nonviolence. You write Gene Sharp, the Machiavelli of nonviolence, has been fairly described as the most influential political figure you've never heard of. You know, he's been praised by Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize compared to Gandhi. He's been influential in the U.S. activist left, but he's also someone who has links to the CIA and has influenced regime change operations that have been directed by U.S. intelligence and to the benefit of corporations against socialist states. So talk about Gene Sharp. Who who is he and, and why, why is he, why, what do you mean by neoliberal nonviolence? Yes, and thanks for that introduction, Max. Uh, so, I mean, I think that you introduced some of the general uh, outlines of who Gene Sharp is pretty well. Um, so he, he was a social scientist. His focus was on uh, theorizing the mechanics of nonviolent action which he understood, as you said, to be not sort of a moral um, uh, uh, system necessarily, but um, a system of combat, which is not to say that he didn't have his origins in pacifism. He did, and he had relationships with those in the pacifist movement and in other nonviolent struggles. Um, but this was perhaps one of the most important things about my research is that it illustrated that really Sharp's uh, perhaps most um, important and, and certainly um, one of his most deliberately sought audiences was uh, the U.S. defense establishment. Um, so for 30 years, he um, worked at a place called the Center for International Affairs at Harvard, which was a major node of the emerging national security state. Um, some of, you know, the Cold War's greatest luminaries were there. Robert Bowie, who was future director of the CIA, Henry Kissinger, uh, um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, pardon me, it's hot. Um, you can look up the list. Um, Thomas Schelling, uh, this is all in, in the piece. Uh, but suffice it to say, this um, Center for International Affairs at Harvard, um, which was nicknamed the CIA at Harvard, uh, was a major, uh, you know, kind of early um, think tank that was theorizing, uh, among other things, how the U.S. could prosecute the Cold War and win. Um, and Gene Sharp was very clear that he was anti-communist. Um, he was very clear, uh, although he didn't write about it very much. When he did write about it, he was very clear as to his preferences for economic policy. He thought the government should uh, get out of, of um, you know, quote unquote, intervening in markets. Um, tellingly, he wrote a book called uh, um, Pardon me, it'll come back to me. Um, in 1980, he uh, 
wrote a book um, where he really illuminates these ideas uh, more thoroughly um, than anywhere else. So uh, uh, social power and political freedom, pardon me. Yeah. Um, anyhow, and in this, in this book, he, he's very clear that, you know, for him, nonviolence is, you know, a method of combat and, and also a, uh, sort of aspiration, um, in society. He wants a nonviolent society by which he means limited government because for him and, and his conception of violence, um, centralized government is a key vector, perhaps the key vector of violence. Right. Uh, indeed. Right. Let's uh, let's hear Gene Sharp again in his own words, talking about his uh, theory of nonviolence and the importance of non-negotiation, how essentially those who are protesting the state should never negotiate because the state uses it in order to reduce their demands. And this is essentially a recipe for regime change. And it doesn't seem to you that people there are trading one form of oppression for another. That often happens. That often happens. And it's a good step to bring down the old- He's talking about the Arab Spring. But it's not sufficient. So they have to be very careful. Well, it seems the Egyptians weren't very careful. What they have now is their military brutally cracking down on protesters. We hear about all kinds of abuses. Islamists are gaining power in the country. My question is this. What kind of democracy could the current state of affairs in Egypt possibly create? See, the, the rebels made a mistake. They should never agreed that Mubarak's condition of give the power over to the army and then I'll resign. That was foolish. Because that's the army which has been the agent of repression in Egypt for decades. And they're not going to change overnight. It's unclear what their strategy is. I don't know. I don't have detailed information of what their planning is at all. But that's a different kind of situation than the predominantly nonviolent struggle movement. Well, it did start out as a largely nonviolent popular uprising, but we see what it turned into. Could it be that your concept of nonviolent uprisings is kind of overdue in this day and age? I mean, look at the Arab world. It's a bloody mess. You get bloody messes when you get people standing up and saying we want a change. Because... It, I mean, we can just stop it there but that's such a revealing comment you get bloody messes and he wants people to just walk into bloody messes and be massacred because of this marginal violence theory that he has but here you can see in one of his last interviews he's kind of taking credit for the arab spring um marcy i want to get you to react to that clip of gene sharp and his comments about the arab spring and then talk a little bit about his relationship with peter ackerman who you know was involved with michael milk and the junk bond salesman and helped set up Sharp's CIA-backed Albert Einstein Institute. So, you know, if you have any reaction to his comments there about, you know, people just happen to turn into a bloody mess sometimes, and then uh, what the Albert Einstein Institute is and its its influence globally. Yeah. So, uh, I think that um, one one just uh, distinction before um, we move on, because part of what has thwarted 
candid public discussions about Gene Sharp. Um, he's been referred to as the most important uh, political figure you've never heard of, um, is because previous critics um, have have overstated the case. So, for example, I didn't find, for example, that the Albert Einstein Institution ever received Central Intelligence Agency money, um, but I did find um, that they had solicited lots of money and received uh, substantial amounts of money from the National Endowment for Democracy and its subsidiaries, um, and had worked with lots of groups around the world who were funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. And everybody knows that history, you know, at its at its founding, um, it was founded uh, during the Reagan administration, um, very soon after Reagan came into office. Um, you know, its its founders were clear that it would do a lot of what the CIA had previously been doing. Um, and part of the reason that was necessary is because uh, you know, during the 60s, the CIA had its cover blown. It was funding, for example, the National Student Association. Um, so it had to go uh, uh, under deeper cover. And and we actually have um, uh, leaked documents that, that say as much. Anyhow, all of that is in the piece. Um, returning to my reaction, so this is the interesting thing. Um, I've been characterized as criticizing nonviolence. And actually, very much to the contrary, um, I support nonviolent struggle. Um, what I object to is the way in which Gene Sharp has uh, uh, situated nonviolent struggle um, within uh, authoritarian neoliberalism and uh, the US imperial project, um, which in, in my opinion is not uh, a project that the American public is excited about or has consented to. That project has to be uh, uh, very, in very vigorous ways, um, obscured in order to allow it to happen. So um, my, my feeling is that Gene Sharp has actually removed the heart out of the nonviolent tradition. He, he's actually uh, uh, taken um, something that emerges out of workers' struggles, peasant struggles, uh, poor people's struggles, and he renders it legible for empire as a kind, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing sort of tactic. Uh, and in that way, he eviscerates it of its um, long uh, substantive political history. What does it actually mean to be nonviolent? Uh, it means uh, to care about the people. It means to care about uh, uh, solidarity. It means to advance a world that is fairer uh, and and materially better for the working class. Um, that's the you know there's as much history of nonviolent struggle um, within the labor movement. Obviously, the strike, you know, the withdraw withdrawal of labor, you know, that is um, a, a nonviolent tactic, as there is in, for example, you know, religious struggles, you know, abolitionism and so forth. So, you know. I think what we see when Sharp is so blasé about, you know, there being bloodshed, right? That that stands in marked contrast to, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., um, who who loved the pe loved the people, right? I mean, always at at stake in the development of his strategy was how do I protect the people, how do I advance their interests and also protect them? So, uh, you know, I. I find this I find this very disturbing, and so you know my project, vis-a-vis -vis Gene Sharp, is is in a way to um, 
you know, push the dialectic forward to, to arrive at a higher synthesis when it comes to quote unquote nonviolent action. Um, and, and to uh, part three, we'll do this hopefully out later this year, uh, which will um, focus on Sharp versus King, because those were really the two visions of what nonviolence meant, both as a tactic and, you know, substantively. And it's very telling that while we have streets named after King, if you ask the average U.S. activist uh, who the father of nonviolence is, you know, who should they go to to learn about nonviolence, they will tell you Gene Sharp. So something's very wrong there. Yeah, that is shocking. Yeah. Um, I had actually never considered that. Here you have um, the New York Times essentially crediting the shy intellectual Gene Sharp with the Arab Spring and what took place in Egypt. Shy U.S. intellectual created pr playbook used in a revolution. I don't think he was very shy, and we get that he from was your not. piece. He no, was not I, get in, I get into that. He was. For the world's despots, his ideas can be fatal. Um, and it, you know, from dictatorship to democracy is a 93 page guide to toppling autocrats available in download in 24 languages. Now let's just talk about the concrete impact of Gene Sharp, because this article, which was back in 2011, very different era than now claims that he, he was toppling despots, but you could actually argue that what turned, what happened in Egypt, and you saw the exchange between the RT correspondent, Guyen Chikian and Sharp, where she's challenging him and saying, you're actually, your ideas may actually be making things worse here, is that the military dictatorship retrenched itself. I mean, under Mubarak, you had the front-facing front president and then the deep state that controlled one-third of the economy. Now you have a general from the army just wearing a suit who is even more repressive than Mubarak, uh, and the deep state basically easily gamed the Muslim Brotherhood into this scenario. Be but it all began with Gene Sharp tactics and his longtime partner, Peter Ackerman, who you write about, basically created the April 6th movement in Egypt as this civil society front that wouldn't challenge the issue of Israel and would keep the street violence going. I watched, well, the street protests, and I watched what was taking place in Egypt during the period of upheaval when the Muslim Brotherhood was in power to the extent it was at all. It was there was not nonviolence taking place every day. There were different horrific acts of violence, and the you know the NDP billionaires and millionaires who backed Mubarak were basically paying um, teams of rioters to go out in the street and keep the situation unstable. Gene Sharp's tactics influenced what took place in Nicaragua in 2018, where over well, around 300 people were killed. Many of them were Sandinistas. A large part of the country was put under blockade and people were tortured at these blockades. It was not nonviolent, but many of the key figures who are now under detention in Nicaragua, who incited that uh, rebellion, whether in the media or working behind the scenes, have said they are disciples of Gene Sharp. He is our teacher. Felix Maradiaga said, Gene Sharp is my master. And he's now um, being detained for his role in that violence. Venezuela, Juan Guaido, Leopoldo Lopez, all of these figures, they were trained through Canvas, which is a group that was spun out of Gene Sharp's Albert, Albert Einstein Institute. So um, maybe you, uh, you know, talk about the concrete effect of Gene Sharp and whether it's actually 
made the world a better place. I think we can concretely say Martin Luther King's tactics of nonviolence improved American society and helped uh, expand democracy. It, th there's very little debate about that. But what about Gene Sharp's concrete yeah. legacy? Yeah. So indeed, yes, he founded the Albert Einstein Institution with with Peter Ackerman, who you described, you know, Michael Milken, John Bond, King's uh, right-hand man. Um, and also, you know, Ackerman, board member at the Cato Institute, um, Cato Institute Project for Social Security Choice, uh, you know, very clearly someone with neoliberal politics, um, by which I mean uh, a politics that seeks to expand choice for capital, but impose uh, ever more onerous uh, uh, restraints and compulsions upon labor. Um, so Ackerman and Sharp have a very interesting pattern. So they, they claim that they help anyone who's interested in learning about Sharp's methods of nonviolent action. But if you actually look uh, where they work, based on press reports, based on AEI's own annual reports, again and again, it is uh, uh, attacking countries, attacking quote unquote regimes that are either attempting to defend remnants of socialism. Um, indeed, their first real quote unquote success um, was aiding in the collapse of the Soviet Union. That's a very interesting story, um, which is in the piece. Yeah. Uh, from there, though, they, they go on to assist in the collapse of a variety of, you know, so-called authoritarian regimes that incidentally are, and to be clear, some of them, you know, weren't terribly nice and, and were very repressive, uh, but their real crime was not going along with NATO's agenda, for example, or uh, attempting to, for example, resist IMF and World Bank structural adjustment. So this is the pattern and you are hard pressed. I spent two years on this research and was not able to find an example of Sharp and Ackerman and, and their colleagues at the AEI, uh, at, at the Albert Einstein Institution, helping uh, a U.S. client state, for example, Saudi Arabia. You know, it's a great dictatorship, perhaps, you know, people might be interested in overthrowing, but I did not find any ev evidence that Sharp and Ackerman and company uh, were hard at work trying to make that happen. Um, and to your question, you know, how, how have their ideas and how have their efforts actually changed the world? You can look at the record. You can see, according to, again, annual reports, where Albert Einstein Institution felt that it had been successful, what happens? Neoliberalization. So removal of capital controls, deregulation, privatization, etc. And those policies hurt labor. Those policies hurt workers. Workers. They expand choice and liberty for capital, for corporations. And of course, that's the reason, that's how neoliberals are able to cloak themselves in concepts like liberty and uh, and choice is because they do want it for the powerful. They want it for capital. But if, but if you aren't in the ruling class, they want you to shut up and do what they ask of you. And if you don't comply when they ask, uh, they will find ways to force you um, up, up, up until, you know, you are at the barrel of a gun in chains. Right, right. And, and, you know, given all that history, 
it's sort of disturbing, although I'm not really surprised by the nation, that he, you know, Gene Sharp has been hailed by progressive institutions like the nation as a nonviolent warrior, uh, given his role in deliberately targeting socialist countries around the world. Uh, this is just a gushing, absolutely uh, laudatory, uncritical obituary of Gene Sharp here. Uh, and it mentions his Albert Einstein Institute, calling it a bare bones, privately funded operation that's been spreading the word about nonviolence for three decades. But the Albert Einstein Institution is not bare bones. And it has been, as you write, it has at least ind indirectly received support from the CIA. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned that you, you mentioned that, uh, that uh, Gene Sharp is regarded as the guru of nonviolence by many on the activist left in the US. H how did that take place? And why is there this uncritical portrayal of Gene Sharp? Honestly, like at, at Moderate Rebels, our podcast, my podcast with Ben Norton and at the Gray Zone, we always encounter Gene Sharp uh, as a very negative figure, but there is no writing or so little writing outside of our anti-imperialist circles about the negative effect he's had, except until your pieces came along. Why, why is that? Great question. Um, so first, there's a Sun Tzu art of war quotation that I love, um, which is that if you know yourself and your enemy, you will prevail in a hundred battles. If you understand yourself, but not your enemy for every battle you win, you will lose another one. And if you understand neither yourself nor your enemy, you will lose every battle. I'm paraphrasing based on the translation. But what I love about that is it underscores how vital it is to understand your enemy. So I'm a democratic socialist. I'm also a Christian. I believe we should love our enemies, but we have them. We have enemies. And they do not have our best interests uh, at heart. And it's uh, incumbent upon us, um, both out of self-interest and in the interest of our children um, and in the interest of our communities, uh, to defend ourselves and to advance our interests. So how do these enemies work? And I'm saying this, Max, because again, so I, I didn't find any evidence that even like there's a, like a subsidiary mechanism by which the Albert Einstein Institution received money from the CIA. I, I think it's really important for the left to think about how uh, how intelligence operates in the modern era, uh, because yeah. Yeah. you know, and and this is connected to why haven't we? You know, why why has the conversation about Gene Sharp only now? Uh, really, really started. And I think part of it is because we have to be extremely precise in these conversations or, or else we open ourselves up to dismissal. Um, and, and you know, the left is making big asks of people. We, we ask for a lot of courage. And so um, I think what this story illustrates is a lesson about how the ruling class has been advancing its agenda for the past 50 years. And 
there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a simple mechanistic thing. You know, it's, it's actually quite complicated. I urge people who are interested in this, you know, take some time. I'm sorry they're long, but you know, read it and, and, you know, be, be amazed at how quite shrewd, um, these, these mechanisms of, uh, advancing capital's interests worldwide have been, um, and learn, learn about your enemy. Right. Right. And so your, your series really picks up steam during the Reagan era and afterwards when I would say the so-called ruling class became more sophisticated about what had previously been covert activity and it became overt activity. I'll pull up this David Ignatius article from the Washington post in a second, which is so revealing. It's, it's one of my favorite pieces to show people to explain how U S intelligence works around the world in Eastern Europe and the global South to uh, impose its agenda. And basically Ignatius pro he, he profiles several figures who he calls overt operators. Many of them operate in the vein of Gene Sharp, are disciples of his. One is a funder, George Soros. Others are uh, figures associated with the National Endowment for Democracy, which you mentioned. And these are they all look very uh, anodyne on the surface. It almost seems banal. And what they do is they, in the words of Alan Weinstein, who was a co-founder of the National Endowment for Democracy, we do what the CIA used to do covertly. We just do it in the open. So the NED comes in and funds all these civil society groups, they call them. They fund opposition movements. They do things the U.S. would never tolerate from Russia or China inside the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they then create instability. Uh, then, you know, we're, the instability takes the form of protests, color revolutions against the dictator. How can you not support that? And they use these tactics of nonviolence, which are, as Gene Sharp said, violent. The marginal violence theory was employed by Hong Kong's uh, protesters, who are actually in some cases rioters, in order to provoke the police to escalate the violence so that the West's cameras would see. And then you, what, what do you want after that? It's what 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 all of these opposition movements want. They want US intervention directly, which is extremely violent. And so the one of the things that Gene Sharp did, and you can talk more about this, is he wrote this manual from dictatorship to democracy, or it was a video. I think Martin Sheen narrated it. Both. Both, both. And it was basically brought in through these overt US intelligence channels into countries like, well, Yugoslavia, Serbia, and that was like one of their first major success stories. The U.S. Institute for Peace was involved in distributing it. Um, yeah, so talk about his tactics and how people in the in the left, they, they tend to associate, you know, you can write a book about all the evil things the CIA did 50 years ago in Indonesia today and get mainstream reviews. But if you talk about any of this, you'll be dismissed as kind of a conspiracist. Right. Yeah, it's true. Um, so you know, his, his tactics and U.S. activists embrace of, of those tactics and, and beyond tactics, the strategy and the ideology in which they're tacitly embedded. So per my comment about understanding your enemy, I, I encourage people to read Gene Sharp. He, you know, in, in the way that you would read Clausewitz, which he's been, you know, he's been compared to, or Sun Tzu, or any great uh, military strategist. I encourage you to read him. 
But the mistake that activists make is that they don't read him in context. The mistake that U.S. activists have been making for, for decades is that they, a, they, they read him ahistorically. You know, they, they read him out of context. And part of the reason that is even possible is because of the collapse of po political education. Uh, we right. used to have on the left uh, this this sort of pitch to people that we may or may not win, but at least you're going to get a good education. And that was really rooted in a left that was grounded in the labor movement. So there was a shift beginning in late 60s, 70s, the rise of the foundation-funded, nonprofit-oriented, quote-unquote, left, which is really a staffed professional movement. It's a middle-class movement of, you know, led by right. college-educated people. And whether a lot of people from a lot of people from labor, a lot of people from the Trotskyist left. Yes, yes. So, so this has impacted, sort of, you know, all. Uh, it's impacted labor. This shift has impacted labor unions as well, for sure. And there's a fixation on instead of political education training which is, I think, a suspect word to, to really use um, when we're talking about mobilizing, for example, the working class, you know, where we all we are trying to principally begin with with education. And I think part of the reason this shift has happened is because this new formation, this sort of new left was uh, accountable fundamentally when you look at their budgets to institutions of higher education and uh, foundations. And those institutions have boards of directors and the members of those boards also sit on the boards of major US banks and major US corporations. And so we just need a more frank conversation uh, about what it means to have so many organs of the so-called left uh, structurally dependent on the class that is exploiting uh, global labor. That is a great point. That's an excellent point. And I, I did receive a comment just now, have Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez, or any other leaders targeted by these tactics actually spoken about Gene Sharp? And yes, I'm struggling to find it right now because of YouTube's algorithm, but Hugo Chavez actually delivered an entire uh, speech or lecture on his program, Allo Presidente, where he spoke for an hour about Gene Sharp and read from his book, From Dictatorship to Democracy, and you know said many of the things that Marcy's saying right now, which is that the agenda really is neoliberalism. The agenda is to impose corporate control. It is not democracy. I also uh, went to a major opposition protest in Venezuela in support of Juan Guaido and spoke to some of the people there who were doing the training that you talk about. Yeah. Um, and I said, what kind of training are you doing? And they're like, we're getting into the barrios, the slums, and we're telling people that they don't need the clap box, which was a free, basically a box of free food and sanitary supplies. And we don't need the government. And we're training them in, um, you know, independence, political independence. And I said, what do you think of the sh theories of Gene Sharp? And they said, you know, we love Gene Sharp. He is our guru. I mean, they all, 
So the trainers actually first receive training from the international trainers who bring the Gene Sharp ideas in. Mm -hmm. And then they go and train, you know, parts of the population that are vulnerable that the U.S. wants to or other interests want to mobilize against the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, exactly right. Now, you mentioned, um, you know, the left actually kind of that the, the, these institutions have altered the left. I mean, we've come under attack at the gray zone by outlets that present themselves as progressive that are literally sponsored by the National Endowment for Democracy. Whether it's uh, Bellingcat or Coda Story, they are actually directly sponsored by these intelligence cutouts. But when you talk about, um, you know, kind of a corporatization of the left or a, a, a liberalization of the U.S. left, what institutions are you referring to specifically? What media outlets and 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 what effect has this had in left wing organizing that you've seen? Well, so uh, I will say this: you will know them by their fruits. <laughs> you don't want to name so names. I, well, so I, I mean, I think classic examples. You know, some of the shrewdest foundations, philanthropic foundations in U.S. history. I mean, I'm not breaking news here. People have written many books about this. Right. The Ford um, Foundation. You know, yeah. So the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundations. There are Rockefeller Foundation is now run by Rajiv Shah, who is the former administrator of USAID, which is a mm -hmm. essentially U.S. intelligence cutout. Mm -hmm. He helped design the Zunzuneo platform in Cuba, which was, you know, attempting to kind of create flash mobs and instability inside Cuba. Mm -hmm. So yeah, these and these you see you do see these foundations sponsoring progressive journals and progressive institutions. It's true, uh, the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation as well, which is separate from the Rockefeller Foundation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, before we shift topics, I mean, how do you think the left? in the US can resist this program and actually begin to form, you know, its own independent institutions when there's so much, I mean, in academia, in uh, progressive media, there's so much pressure to get the grant money and everything's been so NGOified. Um, you know, I wrote about all these advocates of the Green New Deal going out to this resort, whether it's Van Jones or Naomi Klein or uh, uh, Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and they go there for training and then they meet funders there who are offering them lots of money but these are funders from the essentially the billionaire class and these are people coming there who are like left-wing street organizers who have radical backgrounds as a very disturbing dynamic how can you how do you how do you stay out of that if you're in the left or you're in academia i mean that's a great question so I do not like the idea, which is peddled by some, that the important revolution is the inner one, because I think that obscures what world historically revolution has actually meant, <laughs> and it's not being straight with people. Um, but I do think that there are some inner adjustments that those of us who constitute 
the self-identified left have to make. And one of them, for example, is uh, getting beyond the idea that our, our value, our identity flows from our waged work, that we aren't an organizer, we aren't a political educator, unless we are getting paid to do those things. Uh, I think all of us have skills that we should develop and figure out how to support ourselves uh, doing doing that. And relatedly, um, for, for those of us on the self-identified left, we need to uh, we need we need to ensure that, um, and, and I don't want to pretend like it's easy, that we have clarity on the programs we are proposing. Because one of the things that Gene Sharp, for example, makes it very easy to do is simply have a politics of opposition. And that stunts political movements. It stunts us in a very adolescent place. Uh, you know, screw you, you know, screw you, dad, anarchism is sometimes yeah. what I used to describe. Yeah. Um, we have got to move beyond simply opposing. And we have got to get down and dirty in the details of what we are proposing. And that requires knowing something about history substantively you know that requires wrangling with the challenging moral contradictions of power um you know it, it's i i don't want to suggest that this is super easy to do but on the other hand you know i don't think it's all that hard to do either and i think we should all take comfort and courage in the fact that uh little little adjustments can have big ramifications little ideological adjustments can have big ramifications and we're in a very chaotic moment world historically right now and a lot is up for grabs and so i think we have to sort of you know take a step of faith uh we have to make sure that we are uh, clear about what we are about um that incidentally you know that requires engaging criticism that requires you know kicking the tires on our own ideas and letting other people do that to us. Um, so we got to toughen up a little bit. Uh, but I think if if we do some of the things I just listed will be much better off. Well, and I, I would argue, you know, just acknowledging that imperialism exists is an important thing the left in the US often fails to do. And you see in a lot of yeah. And a lot of uh, democratic socialist circles or yeah. what you, you, you know, anarchist circles, yeah. uh, protests are just seen as organic, even if the U.S. is directly involved, sponsoring yeah. the leadership. And the government is a, an anti-imperialist government or a socialist government or simply just independent from the U.S. sphere of influence as Syria was. Acknowledging imperialism casts all of these... Um, so-called protest movements, which often turn into violent, dirty wars in a totally different light. We're looking at what's happening in Nicaragua, where opposition figures are being jailed and put on trial, acknowledging that they have been nurturing relationships with the U.S. intelligence, raking in money from USAID, and sponsoring destabilization activities for at least a decade. Acknowledging that 
on the left is a duty, I think. And that's one of the things we try to do at the gray zone is just to provide that context that's always left out as it was from that nation, um, Gene Sharp, ode to Gene Sharp. But I want to switch topics since I know your time is limited. You have one of the most, I, I don't know why it's controversial, but it is, including among the left. You've published one of the most controversial pieces we've ever published at the gray zone. And, uh, you know, for discussing it just now on Moderate Rebels, uh, basically, we risked being censored. But it's a very well thought out. That's great, Max. <laughs> very clinical piece. Um, and it's called, Why Won't the U.S. Medical Establishment Believe Women? COVID-19 vaccines do not warn about menstrual disruption. This is a feminist argument for the medical establishment, the CDC and FDA, to provide women with factual information and to conduct studies about these vaccines, which are now being mandated in many workplaces. Uh, Canada is now forbidding uh, vaccinated people. I, I've read, maybe this isn't the case, from getting on trains and planes, uh, pa vaccine passports are coming into play. And so you meant, you write here that one of the most vaccine hesitant groups, which is unacknowledged in U.S. media for the most part, are women of childbearing age, and that you have many friends who have experienced menstrual disruptions as the result of um, vaccination, COVID-19 vaccination. Talk about your piece. I mean, what do you want people to, to know about this 6,700-word, extremely clinical piece? I couldn't bear to look at the final word count. Oh my God, that's terrible. <laughs> it's good. I mean, that's what the gray zone's for. We don't. Yeah, I we know. Just, Thank you we so just, much. Max, let writers go long. Considering Max is a wonderful editor. Thank you. <laughs> very tolerant and very talented editor. Uh, so I wrote this piece because I have five friends and not acquaintances, these are good friends, who are dealing with very disconcerting menstruation-related symptoms after having received a COVID-19 vaccine. And the FDA and the CDC, as far as we can tell, have not commented. They are not taking this issue seriously. Now, I don't know why that is. I speculate in the piece as to a variety of possibilities, but we don't know why. But the fact remains, they have not issued any kind of press release, you know, no CDC top ranking officials on the record about this issue. And meanwhile, there are, to be conservative, tens of thousands of reports globally of this. And I say conservative because I know that none of my friends have reported their symptoms to bears. And part of that is because in December, the CDC created a parallel reporting system called VSafe. That's a smartphone app uh, platform and is directing people to report their side effects there. And that public data, that part of me, that data is not publicly available. Some of it is supposed to get put into bears if it's serious. So we don't know the full scope of this, but 
you know, those of us who are on the left hear a lot about honoring, listening to quote unquote lived experience. And right now over the past three months, my lived experience has been one friend after another sharing with me that they are dealing with, in some cases, pretty harrowing symptoms. And the authorities are not answering them. They are not explaining what's going on, why it's going on. Uh, they are not offering direction, serious direction as to how they can restore menstrual health. And it's outrageous. It's outrageous. Because for, for one reason, we have been told for, for several years now that finally, at long last, our political leaders believe women. And what we've actually seen with respect to reporting on, on this particular issue in the press is a shockingly sexist assessment. I mean, it's really staggering. Uh, I, I quote a variety of articles, but there are dozens of others that I could have included and created more works work for Max. Well, um, let's, let's look at one of those articles. I mean, sure. we, you know, you say press coverage of COVID vaccine related menstruation disruption has followed a clear pattern, dismissive, trivializing or hostile headlines and framing are followed deeper into the articles by acknowledgement that something may indeed be very wrong. And here we have an article in The Guardian. The headline is, no data linking COVID vaccines to menstrual changes, U.S. experts say, which reminds me of all of their, you know, the, a lot of the reporting on Russia Gate, for example. It's always so it's sourced to some U.S. official. And then yeah. later in the article, they'll say there is currently no evidence to back up this uh, claim yeah. of meddling or hacking or whatever. And then here, I, I included a screenshot of an acknowledgement. I think this is the literally like the last paragraph in the, this April Guardian article. Think of potential menstrual irregularities as a vaccine side effect like fever. And they go on to just say, it's normal. Don't worry about it. But they acknowledge it exists. Whereas the headline says that it doesn't exist. Uh, that is just, it's amazing. But it's also, I mean, you, you document this pattern of dismissing women's concerns, basically gaslighting them, telling them, you know, this is normal. Just sit there and take it. Don't worry about it. Even though these haven't even been approved by the FDA, yeah. don't ask for studies and even apologize. I'm sorry, Max. I left out the key thing, which yeah. is that there was no warning, right? This, that these were surprise side effects. So the, the, the article really is asking, you know, uh, multi-part, but, but simple, one question, which is uh, why, despite the fact that there are widespread reports, and this is something that women across the country are whispering about over text message, all right? And despite this, there's no apparent concern from public health authorities. There's dismissals from medical experts in the press and there's no warning. And there's, there's no indication that, I mean, as the CDC and FDA haven't commented on this, that they're, you know, thinking about adding a warning. So 
the current mass vaccination campaign, we have to understand, is happening uh, as this is what it appears, lacking true informed consent for women. If you go and you accept a COVID-19 vaccine for yourself or for your daughter tomorrow, you will be accepting a medical therapy, uh, which it appears public experts are conceding. Maybe something's going on. The National Institute for Health, Health is going to be doing a, spending a million dollars to study this, but the results are going to come out sometime in the future. You know, you are not going to be apprised of the possibility that this could be a side effect. And as I get into in the piece, people may be like, oh, well, whatever, it's, it's a menstrual cycle. It can sort of, you know, it, it does its own thing. It's a little, you know, they're unpredictable. Environmental factors can change it. This is a coincidence, uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, fundamentally, this is not as serious as, you know, dying from COVID-19. But here's the thing. I mean, the reason we have informed consent, the reason we disclose side effects to people is because every person has a different health makeup, different circumstances. So right. you know, part of what's telling is that vaccine hesitancy is high among women of childbearing age, it appears, even though this is really repressed and, and sort of ignored in the news, much to the detriment, in my opinion, um, of, for example, the Democratic Party. Um, you know, childbearing women, pardon me, women of childbearing age may be trying to conceive, right? And this is this is relevant for, for them to know about. And the, well, the they, CDC, sorry, the CDC just urged pregnant women to go out and get yeah, vaccinated. Yeah, has, really, has, the ha has the vaccine been sufficiently studied on pregnant women and fetuses? Are you asking me? I'm asking you, yes. So, well, I mean, ask Tony Fauci. In June, he said that we lack robust uh, clinical data. And that's the reason why, you know, well after 10,000 pregnant women had already, and, and pregnant and breastfeeding women had already uh, accepted the vaccine, um, they launched in June, the, the NIH launched this longitudinal study called MommyVax, which is going to be tracking um, outcomes. So, you know, if, if you are to rely on the legacy media, then everything is fine, nothing to see here, it's perfectly safe, you're insane for asking, so on and so forth. But if you, you know, look into the medical literature and if you look at official, you know, more sort of legally important uh, statements from the government and from the corporations involved, things are much more circumspect. More study is needed. And I'm a lawyer licensed in New York and Massachusetts. And I am not inclined to be generous in my interpretation of statements yeah. like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hedging. Well, let's look at this right here. Uh, this tweet by Georgia Clark. Georgia Clark is a reporter for the Telegraph, also known as the Tory Graph. It's a pro Boris Johnson paper in the UK. And she said, so I'm in a hospital after developing rare heart inflammation linked to Pfizer, to the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. And even with this side effect, I would get the jab again. Side effects can be treated. Dying from COVID-19 can't. The benefits far outweigh the risks. And this is sort of uh, the way you're supposed to behave uh, 
especially as a someone working in the media, because the media is part of uh, the consent factory here. And you are also supposed to behave that way as a woman who, as you point out, a woman of childbearing age, women in general, suffer more adverse reactions to these particular vaccines than men do, which is why their hesitancy to take them is higher. What, do you, what you, her reaction comes from fear. We all are supposed to be, we are, and many people are justifiably afraid of dying or losing their relatives to this virus. Uh, people are gripped by fear. And this is present on the left, probably more than the right, including the anti-imperialist left. So what's your reaction to her saying that? And can you under, understand where she's coming from? I find it to be sort of the masochistic mentality where you just give up uh, any hope in any popular power when yeah. you start thinking that way. You just give up and you let the ruling class take over when you start thinking that way. But can you understand where she's coming from? Definitely. What's your reaction? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think this is an astonishing moment. And in researching and writing and publishing the piece, I have tried to balance the courage of my convictions with compassion for people who are going to be upset that I've had the temerity to ask these questions. Because I know it, this is, I do not need to be convinced that COVID-19 is a real and deadly virus. This is true. This is true. And as I say in the piece, I have empathy for families in America who are trying to keep themselves safe, who are trying to keep their children and their elders safe and others in their community safe. You know, we've seen real heroism. You know, I've got a, a dear friend who is a, a nurse out in the Bay Area. And, you know, her, her descriptions of her life since lockdown have just been insane. You know, and we, we've seen extraordinary heroism. But it's also true that if there are menstruation-related side effects, those need to be disclosed. And it's true that historically, US medicine, pharmaceutical industry has acted as though the uh, women's health and acted as though, you know, the, the, the female body is, is sort of just a derivative uh, of the norm of, of the male body. And as a consequence, for example, you know, it was not, not until 1996, I believe that it was even required that women be included in clinical trials. Uh, tellingly, given that this was, uh, an emergency use authorization process for all three vaccines, the data wasn't disaggregated by sex. Right. And, you know, to me, um, you know, I understand that that here we have a situation wherein we, we've got competing interests that have to be balanced. Uh, but I do not think the solution is to bulldoze informed consent for women. Well, I mean, informed consent has gone completely out the window. Now we are supposed to get our children to take this experimental injection 
I don't know how children can have informed consent here. Although I am not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I have kept my child basically up on the vaccination schedule of vaccines that are proven that have actually wiped out entire diseases and viruses, uh, polio, for example, mumps, these kinds of things. Uh, but this one seems to be different. And we are, it's just a fact that we're in an experimental phase. Uh, so my question here is two parts because you're raising issues that are very salient. And obviously it's resonating with our audience, the chat's lighting up. Um, but you're going to get called an anti-vaxxer. And there's this conflation of the vaccines that are given to children as a condition for them to go to preschool with this injection, which as we now know from the director of the CDC, Rachel Walensky, does not prevent you from transmitting the disease. And now we see all these cases in areas with 80 to 90% vaccination rates like Marin, Marin County. So what's the difference between this that and, and the traditional vaccines? And how do you dispute the allegation, which is inevitable, that you are an anti-vaxxer, which is probably the worst thing to be called right now. It's worse now than being called in one of the insurrectionists or a terrorist. Yeah. Um, you are not the first person to observe that. That's It's really interesting. Well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words cannot hurt me. <laughs> so I, like, whatever, people... I'm a democratic socialist, as I've mentioned, with an emphasis under current circumstances on democratic. I believe deeply in civil liberties and I won't bore your audience now with my own personal biography, but in my own experience, civil liberties, constitutionally protected civil liberties have been essential to my political development. Um, I would not be the person I am today uh, without them. So, you know, I assert my right to publish and say the things that I that I have, but people have the right to call me names, and you know they're welcome to do that and have fun and you know roll around in the wonderful sensation of hating me. That's fine, um, and I would you know, defend their right to do that to the death, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, one thing I want to say, kind of your original question, is that. So, okay, I agree with you that, that it's up in the air, as I've, I think, highlighted whether the American public has been given true informed consent, okay? Um, but let's grant, yeah. I don't know, let's grant that, because to be clear, I'm asking FDA, CDC, comment on this, investigate this. I would love for you to see that, say that this is all a coincidence. This is all a coincidence. Your friends have nothing to worry about. And here is the trustworthy evidence the trustworthy science uh, that proves it, okay? I would love yeah. that. So let's grant them that that's gonna happen, all right? Let's grant that they're going to, um, you know, do this research, respond you know, respond to my piece, comment, do the research, um, et cetera. Uh, there's informed consent. Um, the, Reality is people still have their rights, okay? But rights have to be exercised. 
So this is something that has been frustrating to me is that headlines, I mean, it's very similar to sort of what we're seeing with um, coverage of menstrual disruption. Coverage of, of mandates has made it seem like these mandates are categorical. And in nearly all of the mandates that I've seen, there, um, it, it says sort of in the fine print, you know, or you have to get tested at some interval for COVID-19. Right. So I would encourage people, you know, this is, like I said, this, everyone is, many of us are not our best selves right now. Okay. So we should be compassionate with each other, try to meet in the middle, you know, try to empathize with one another. Um, but of course, hold our own boundaries. If we have health circumstances, um, whereby for the time being, you know, we're going to get tested um, at, at intervals for COVID-19 to ensure that, you know, we are keeping everyone safe, uh, then that is still your right under most of these mandates. You're going to have to exercise it. You know, you're, you may have to have a conversation with your manager or something, but, you know, th this is, we really, you know, need to remember that for a democracy to remain vibrant, for civil liberties to remain alive, they have to be exercised. And look, I mean, that's the real test. We're sort of living through a real test. Who among us is willing to exercise civil liberties when it's not popular? Well, I think the U.S. left has largely failed that test so far. I see no opposition being put up, uh, no discussion, no discussion of the consequences of these policies. I know your time is really valuable, Marcy. We've gone an hour. So I want to ask you just one last question since you brought up the mandates and the passports. And I brought up the response of the left. We just saw a piece in Jacobin arguing for a national vaccine mandate. I think it is, uh, the piece is filled with contradictions, uh, especially uh, exposing the contradiction of Jacobin calling itself democratic socialist. I believe vaccine passports will retrench the oligarchic system of the United States and create it, further harden our caste system and isolate an entire group of people who are already experiencing marginalization. But what is your opinion? I mean, I, maybe I prejudiced your opinion, but I think we kind of think the same way. Do, do you agree with me? This, this is this is this is a class issue. What is your opinion of vaccine passports and yeah. mandates? And um, where should where should the left stand? Yeah. So, um, well, you know, first, I just I just want to note that I, I think that there is there are elements within the left and the liberal left that are pushing back on more censorious elements of. Uh, of, of the left. Okay. So for example, the New York times recently did, you know, a pretty critical story on what's going on in the ACLU. Um, and, and I encourage people to go read that if you haven't. And I think it's our duty to, you know, be part of that, uh, you know, be, be part of this effort to uh, bring to the fore why civil liberties are so important and, you know, to elevate stories and, and elevate people who are uh, making that case, who are explaining that. Um, so to actually connect this back to Jean Sharp, because it's related to your question about Jacobin and, and vaccine passports, I, I just want to address 
maybe something that it, for those who are familiar with my work, for those who've read my research on SHARP, um, I want to address something that could be confusing. So in part two of my research on SHARP, I talk about how Gene Sharp, based on the way in which he constructs violence, okay, I'm not going to get into the details, but based on how he constructs violence, theoretically, uh, it leads to this thing which I term domination anxiety. People are very anxious to commit any sort of quote unquote violence against anyone else, which, you know, violence is sort of defined in the Sharpian framework in, in a way that's an inch deep and a mile wide. So um, it's it's anything that's coercive, uh, uh, but on the other hand, it's also anything that uh, produces any sort of injury. So what this, what I say in the piece is like, look, we, we, we need to get over this domination anxiety, this sort of preciousness that, you know, like I said, that, you know, sticks and stones break our bones, you know, and also words are the same as murder. Okay. So we have to move through this. Um, and so people might be wondering like, well, hey, Marcy, you're the person who was like telling us to get over our domination anxiety. And now we are, we're trying to get people to, you know, support, uh, you know, collective health by all getting vaccines and having these vaccine passports. So what gives? All right. So here's the explanation. Here's, here's the contradiction that always has to be negotiated. Um, I mentioned earlier, authoritarian neoliberalism, right? Seeks choice for capital, choice for corporations, choice for the ruling class, but coercion, compulsion for labor. Okay. So we have to be very clear on we have to certainly get over our anxieties about ever being accused of dominating anyone. You know, we're, we're quote unquote dominating rich people when we demand their money for taxes. Okay. I mean, that's the, that's true, true for everybody. Okay. Um, but evidence and moral reason justify this quote unquote domination. All right. And what I say in the piece is that it is society's right to manage its members and especially when the welfare of the whole is at stake you know it is society's right for sure you know to you know make demands on people okay but where fundamental individual liberties are at stake a healthy society recognizes and allows its members to say hey i i'm gonna need to see trustworthy evidence and this is going to need to uh be explained in in terms of sort of moral reasoning that are compelling okay and here's the issue and this is you know where where we can leave it is setting aside all this sort of potentially very orwellian implications of vaccine passports um which you know jacobin kind of checks you know name checks but i, I think doesn't you know, really grapple with uh, is just the question of politics and institutional legitimacy, okay? Um, you can force people to do stuff, all right? I mean, we have many examples of this throughout history, but Gene Sharp actually observes this, okay? Like I said, read Gene Sharp, read him like Clausewitz, read him like Sun Tzu, don't read him ahistorically, 
And he observes that, like, ultimately all power rests on consent. I mean, that wasn't him. That was Machiavelli who ultimately said that, who originally said that, okay? So, I, I mean, we've got a democratic administration. They barely won. We've got a midterm coming up. You know, it's it's now being reported that it's going to have to be the best midterm performance in history in order for Democrats to hold the House. And we should not, you know, imagine that the stakes are not extremely high. Okay. And so we need to be realistic. Just the, the Biden administration today, I think, sort of in a cop to, you know, people who are, you know, really want super hardline vaccine passport policies are like, we're thinking about it, but it might be too polarizing. Okay. So I think that they, the just, to, just to interrupt for a second, I'm sorry. They said too polarizing regarding banning interstate travel for unvaccinated people. So that's what's being discussed right now. And, well, and that really needs to be on everyone's mind. My opinion, but okay. What you were saying. Um, that there will, there will be serious implications. For, I mean, I think the Democrats no, I mean, are clobbered. I think the Democrats, I really hope that they, they look as soberly as possible. You know, the fear is legitimate. The hysteria is real. Okay. This is an, we're in a kind of existential moment. Okay. So I, I want to, I want to flag that that's deeply felt. Okay. I understand that, but we have to, as best we can sober up and think through what are the short, medium, long-term implications of all this. Okay. And, um, one short-term implication is that if you really look the vaccine hesitant trend, more young than old, more black than white, and more female than male. Okay. There are also a lot of union members. There are also a lot of union members who are, uh, vaccine hesitant, it turns out, um, as we're seeing more and more reports in the press, especially as the fall semester approaches. Um, so uh, those all constitute pretty important parts of democratic coalition. Um, so so Democrats need to be thinking through that fact and not well, just characterizing the vaccine hesitant all as, you know, QAnon freaks. Well, they're, in my view, they're not thinking they're it through. Sorry. And I hear, I hear your, uh, I hear the sound of, uh, I hear the pitter patter of young feet. And so I know you have to go, but I wanted to shout out your Substack. tell everyone where to find your writing. It's new. It's coming. <laughs> the content is coming. What, where is it? What, what, what's it called? Uh, it's, it's called a mind for the times. Marcy Parenti Substack. Okay, well, Marcy Smith Parenti, thanks so much for your time and for your bravery on this issue. Uh, it's something that we're going to be talking Marcy. about a lot for the next, for a long time. Take okay. care. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> so I actually didn't know I could drop the um, lower third here for her. So it said Max Blumenthal while Marcy Smith Parenti was speaking, but. Uh, Definitely, uh, and Marcy, you can go now. You're off the stream. Check out Marcy's article um, at the Gray Zone. It is 
6,700 words, but it's, it, it explains a lot of the problems with the regime, the very ideological regime that we're living under right now uh, from a feminist perspective. It's called, Why Won't the U.S. Medical Establishment Believe Women? COVID-19s do not warn about menstrual disruption. Um, and, you know, I never really wanted to talk about these issues because of the threat of censorship and because I wasn't sure I would know what the hell I was talking about. But I talked about it last week here. Anyone who posted a YouTube clip of my stream got it censored. Me and Ben Norton just had a stream uh, at our moderate rebel stream. We weren't planning on talking about any of these issues related to COVID, but our guest uh, was unable to come on and, uh, you know, struggling for something to talk about because we had a large audience. I just decided to bring up uh, Marcy's article and the wider issue of mandates and passports. We had a very good response. Um, but, you know, Ben Norton was understandably incredibly uncomfortable because of the censorship regime. I totally get where he's coming from. And I was told by UK-based viewers that we were told uh, there were like, we were in violation of community standards when all I was doing was saying, we need to debate passports and mandates, putting people out of work and banning them from indoor spaces because they won't take an experimental injection. Um, I think it's going to change the nature of European and American or North American society. I don't think the countries in the global South can or will implement these kind of coercive measures. And I do see a lot of comments in the chat about Cuba and China uh, really pushing vaccines. And I hear that from a lot of anti-imperialists. Cuba and China are doing this. So, and you know, they, they seem to be this, this model for many anti-imperialists of uh, you know, healthy societies that operate along uh, Marxist lines, socialist lines. What, I don't live in those societies and I am coming at this from a North American perspective. We, and we also need to understand how these coercive measures, which they do not operate on public consent necessarily will destabilize the Imperial core and actually change relations between the United States and the, and what's known as the West and the countries it's targeting, as well as the countries where it seeks more influence, uh, like in Sub-Saharan Africa. But we can't discuss them on YouTube. I, I literally, it appears that I'm literally forbidden from just having this debate. So we see that Jacobin is calling for national, a national mandate, which could damn well put lots of working class people out of work in New York City already with de Blasio City Pass. I'm sure that Many people want to debate that. You can probably do that on YouTube, but I cannot say anything that I just said on YouTube. So, you know, I'm really glad I have Rockfin here. I didn't join Rockfin specifically to discuss these COVID-related issues. It's just that after the so-called so Delta variant came into our lives and the mask mandates were restored for fully vaccinated people, I noticed that something was very wrong and I noticed that there was a pivot and you can watch Anthony Fauci's recent speech at the center for strategic and international studies in Washington, think tank very close to the national security state where he does pivot 
and he puts forward an agenda which he hadn't been speaking about before. We're hearing admissions from public health officials like him and the CDC, things they never admitted before, like that the vaccines do not prevent transmission, and they're pivoting to a new agenda. So that's when I decided to speak up about this. Um, and that's kind of you know, what the whole spirit of the gray zone was to start debate about issues that were completely off limits in the mainstream media because it acts just simply as a megaphone for what you could call our ruling class. So I'm going to keep doing it. I'm not, uh, and, and, you know, now that I have a platform to do so, I'll keep doing it. I want to expand the debate. And uh, I'm going to try to get to some of the comments here. It's really difficult to get everything in. Um, well, someone mentioned that Jacobin is calling for camps. I didn't see that, but I saw, I actually haven't read the article, uh, but it's about Australia. And what's happening in Australia is the most authoritarian measures, and they're basically praising them. Um, and we've even seen the Australian government recently require people who live abroad for most of the year, Australian citizens, to get government permission to leave. Um, in addition to all of these uh, harsh lockdowns that we're not experiencing in the U.S. Gates owning most farmland that is uh, that was recently reported. Uh, uh, Chris H. brought that up, and that's very significant because of Gates also is extremely interested in genetically modified agriculture. And when an oligarch owns most of the farmland in your country, you can be pretty sure you live in an oligarchy. Someone mentioned that uh, the definition of anti-vaxxer was changed in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. And I see that PolitiFact, which is you know not necessarily a site that I would consider factual all the time, in many ways, it's sort of a narrative managing website, says that isn't the case. I assume they didn't change the definition, but the definition is really interesting. So I want to put it on screen because this is a term that will be, that's used when it's the same kind of term as like, a, you know, a pro, you know, pro Kremlin or Assadist terms that are used to denigrate anti-imperialists. Uh, they accuse you of supporting the dictator, being involved with the dictator uh, or the government that you're defending against a ruthless imperial assault. And so anti-vaxxer can be used against, I, I mean, by definition, it can be used against anyone now who opposes mandates. Even if you don't think, you know, I never, I don't run around telling people don't get it, don't get it. But it says a person who opposes vaccination or laws that mandate vaccination. That's really significant to me. That's disturbing. I mean, because you could, according to this definition, according to that definition, you could support vaccinating your child as I do, but you oppose throwing people out of their jobs because they won't do it. You're an anti-vaxxer. Uh, you're not a civil libertarian. Uh, so it's a very politicized definition that deserves to be challenged. Thank you. Armando Solorzano, um, good show, Max. I really appreciate all the encouragement. This definitely is not always easy to take on a new topic, 
you know, when we've been kind of in a comfort zone at the gray zone after withstanding so many insane attacks. Uh, Rules for Fools asks, do I anticipate climate lockdowns and carbon passports? You know, I can't comment on that, but I do see a lot of discussion in more libertarian circles. I want to... I want to, um, I can't think of the author's name. She wrote it in The Spectator. She's an Australian author um, about the possibility of kind of climate lockdowns uh, and various sort of measures that have been proposed through the World Economic Forum, which is run by Klaus Schwab. There's a lot of theories around him and the Great Reset. Um, But I've seen discussion about that. And I really have no idea what to say, except that one of the more interesting points she made was that there have been lots of dry runs for a pandemic. I mean, understandably so, given like the dirty supply chains of food, it's understandable that there would be dry runs, but they're dry runs carried out by Through the Gates Foundation and elite institutions where the public is sort of kept out of the loop. And now there are dry runs for what's called the digital pandemic, where hacking and hackers can actually, or will be said to shut down the internet. And we will, you, you, you see the development of smart cities, so-called smart cities, something the Rockefeller Foundation and other uh, you know, elite NGOs are pushing, where everything is wired and everyone is connected to each other digitally through the internet, the electricity grid is run digitally. And if there's a digital pandemic, then entire cities and societies uh, begin to collapse. So what do we have to do to protect ourselves? Securitization, uh, massive securitization and and paranoia about hackers. I mean, we saw what happened with the supposed ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, where if you lived on the East Coast for several days, it was difficult to get gasoline. Um, and you know, with this uh, shift away from gasoline comes the you know e- electric batteries. Most uh, you know, minerals will be mined for electric batteries, according to the World Economic Forum, by 2040, which means uh, in- environmental degradation, all sold as uh, part of the Green New Deal. So it's definitely worth considering these questions. I wrote a, by the way, you could check out my piece about the uh, Michael Moore produced film, Planet of the Humans, where I engage with a lot of these issues. Uh, I got to kind of go down the rabbit hole there because of, uh, you know, U.S. society shutting down for a couple of months and there wasn't much to do. Um, Chile has crazy restrictions. That's interesting. That makes sense uh, out of all South American countries. Uh, someone, Hank Moultrie said, anyone saying vaccine passports are coming is a conspiracy theorist. This year, anyone against vaccine passports is a conspiracy theorist. Excellent point. And I pointed out earlier today, I mean, we talked about that on a Gray Zone live stream just when we were batting around ideas about what the pandemic would look like, what effects it would have on different societies. And I said, well, it seems inevitable that this will move towards mass vaccination campaigns and that you'll have to produce proof of it to travel. And that I was kind of like considered insane for saying that at the time. I mean, I I got comments from people, including, um, you know, friends saying you're getting a little out there, man. 
and now it's happening. And so if you oppose it, you are an anti-vaxxer. You're a conspiracist. That is a really great point. Uh, Alison Irwin, women are so powerful. Our power has been taken. Our bodies are wise. The most beautiful thing is seeing people take it back. Going to uh, Brian Fouché, going to be interesting to see how many people don't get the third jab. Also, almost 20% of people who got jab one didn't take jab two. Another really important point, the boosters are coming, at least in certain societies. In Israel, they are already beginning. Israel's the most vaccinated society on earth uh, for COVID-19. And if the FDA or the CDC, or the Biden administration calls for booster shots, that means that at some point in the near future, all of you who got fully vaccinated could be considered unvaccinated because according to Moderna's own research, which it released last week, efficacy wanes after six months. And so that means boosters are required. Will young people who did their part wanted to go back to normal Will they agree to this? And then will they be asked to take a fourth and a fifth shot and then a 40th or 50th shot? We don't have answers to those. We only have orders. Um, and that's why we need debate. Our B. Riley Shalito says, it just blows my mind that others on the left aren't at least challenging this a little bit. It blows my mind too. It's, it's something I can't stop thinking about is why, how we're whistling past the graveyard on the left here and not seeing what's happening. And I think it's because many people, I, I would say in my own circles, many people went out and got uh, their double jab right away because they thought it was their path back to normal and they're healthy. And, you know, they haven't, most of them haven't had any side effects except for women who I, I mentioned before have had so, some women I know have had menstrual disruptions, but for the most part, they're doing fine. They're living their lives. They, they, they can get their vaccine passports. So what's it to them? The question is, do you have contact with people who don't want to get it? Do you understand why they don't? Uh, and I live, where I live, I'm a little drop of milk in a big cup of coffee because I live in D.C., Washington, D.C., and I live in Ward 8. And it's D.C. that I know has always been like that. It's always been a majority black city. I've always been a very privileged minority within this majority black city. Um, maybe the only white person on my block. And so I talk to people. Some of them are starting to get vaccinated. Some of them don't want to. And they have reasons, given the experimentation that's been done on black people. That is a reason. Fear of side effects, mistrust of Anthony Fauci and the establishment, which has treated black people so horribly. These are all reasons why only 27% of New Yorkers who are black have gotten vaccinated. So when you talk about passports and mandates, you're talking about margin, further marginalizing, uh, I guess by the numbers, 73% of New York City's black population, uh, many of my neighbors, uh, and the, and 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 the as these coercive measures come into effect, people are not the, getting them as a result of them. I, people I know who got them got them because they decided, well, they've seen other people get them and it was safe, so they might as well just do it. So that's one one thing to think about here for the left. 
you know, if they do stand up for marginalized groups, why are they supporting policies that will further marginalize them? And that's why Marcy's article was so important about the impact on women's. Um, this is a, a disturbing question by Rev Hawk. This is disturbing. I hadn't considered this before. Maybe big pharma can get an extra windfall treating these quote unquote undesired effects in addition to the killing they are making off the vaccines themselves. Well, I don't know. I, I don't think they have this secret plan to cause adverse effects because that uh, you know makes it harder to sell the vaccine themselves. But hey, it doesn't hurt. And in any case, they're totally indemn indemnified against any legal ramifications. In 1986, a Democratic-controlled Congress passed a bill completely exempting big pharma from lawsuits over vaccines, and it was passed by Ronald Reagan. And then, uh, you know, I think it was slipped into the stimulus package that the makers of the COVID-19 emergency-approved vaccines could be exempt from any lawsuit. So if anything happens to you, there's nothing you can do to them. So what's the harm in just throwing all this shit out there when you're going to need to come back to them anyway to get it treated? Uh, someone wrote, Ahmed Shear, CGTN headline, one to three million Americans detained in anti-vax camps. Obviously, tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic comment, but again, a very smart comment because here we have the West, Western democratic societies, self-proclaimed liberal democracies doing everything that they mock China or the Soviet Union for. They say, you know, China puts people in camps uh, that they force people to take injections to sterilize themselves, to lower the birth rate, that China has a social credit system. Well, on the third point, social credit system. I don't know if China has a social credit system. I think that's kind of an exaggerated story, but China definitely has a different system than ours. They don't pretend to have a liberal democracy, and it's not my country, so I'm not going to preach to the Chinese government. What I want is the U.S. to leave China alone and let it develop. But the social credit system is an interesting concept. I'm sure many people who are watching this have watched Black Mirror. It's a show that entertains various dystopian scenarios in a science fiction USA that's run by a techno-fascist kind of elite, you know, bumblebee drones and, and so forth. Uh, reality shows where people who've committed horrible crimes have to run through a vicious gauntlet and then be killed as an audience of uh, salivating um, sadists watches at home, kind of like the same plot as The Running Man, the Schwarzenegger film. And then the most, uh, one of the most popular Black Mirror episodes was about a kind of Uber rating system for humans where people are rated according to good behavior by other people. And then uh, they get a cumulative rating, which allows them social benefits uh, through popularity. Now, I don't think that system is coming into play, but there's a reason that show is popular. It's because people can imagine that happening in our society uh, with where things are going. There's a reason Black Mirror struck a chord because it plays on anxiety people, anxieties people develop with our pre-existing mechanisms of social interaction and control. And now we have a vaccine passport that is being discussed. It will ultimately be digital. It's been conceived by the Gates Foundation's ID 2020, and it could be something everyone has to possess. 
that's very easy to present through your phone and is linked to your finance, your finance, your bank account and everything else. And you get it because you behaved well. You took an injection, whether you wanted to or not, whether it was healthy for you or not, and you were being rewarded, not with something that is a luxury or something that's an incentive, but with basically having your life back, being able to participate in public, being able to work, maybe even being able to go to the supermarket and get food. And I want to know, how is that not a social credit system, something that the U.S. constantly mocks China for? Um, people are... Someone took a screenshot of something. I, I some you know I have people in the stream uh, criticizing Lee Camp and Graham Elwood. I don't know why, but Lee Camp is a good friend. He's one of the you know one of the bravest people out there, um, and I think they're criticizing them for not engaging these issues. That's not the way to go because, given the attacks that Lee already gets, I mean. Why would you want to take this on? It's almost suicidal. And you'll see, I'll get attacked as an anti-vaxxer for just calling for a debate about passports or having Marcy on or publishing her article. So it's not for everyone, but I think we will soon be forced to confront the impact. And uh, this is the situation we're in. I'm going to answer a few more questions. But the situation we're in is where people are afraid they need to be treated, they need to, their fears need to be understood. Their fears are rational and irrational. But whether this virus is lethal to a part of the population, and it is, the mentality of mass fear and coercion, caused by coercion, leads people to make choices that they regret later on. And I think people are going to regret supporting these kind of coercive controls. We're heading to a very dark place. It does remind me of the period immediately after 9-11, where I was among a very tiny minority of people who opposed the war on terror, saw it as a disaster waiting to happen, and the beginning of a massive expansion and permanent expansion of a national security state. And you know, by 2005, 2006, Everybody was with me on that. Everybody was with the anti-war left. There were huge rallies against the war in Iraq. I think people are going to think twice once we start to see these measures implemented. But right now, they're afraid and they want something done so they can go back to normal. And sadly, we're not going back to normal. Um, and we can already see that in just the way speech is being managed with the continued imprisonment of Julian Assange. Uh, I see a lot of comments calling for freeing Julian Assange. Well, here's a point about what took place yesterday in the hearing on Assange, where the hearing was postponed till October. I've seen these hearings take place with a lot of the post 9-11 terror suspects uh, who were completely innocent. I mean, the Holy Land Foundation, these are guys who were just running like nonprofits that were sending aid to Gaza. They're still in jail. No one cares about them. The key was just thrown away. They never posed a threat to anyone. We're never involved in violence. We're working even with USAID and the Red Cross. And whenever they would have hearings, 
before they were even sentenced, the hearings were always consistently delayed to keep them in jail indefinitely. And the private uh, uh, spying firm Stratfor released on, or an email released on Wikipedia where they proposed constantly moving Julian Assange around, never deciding on his fate and keeping him uh, detained in one way or another, whether it's in an embassy or a prison and never ruling. And that's what we're seeing right now because the U.S. government wants to continue to present itself to China and the rest of the world as a force for democracy that believes in a free press and liberalism. It doesn't do these kind of coercive measures. It doesn't have social credit systems. And so ruling on Julian Assange and actually extraditing him and sentencing him would just bring the contradiction, the gaping contradiction out into the open. So they're trying to postpone as long as possible. Someone said, Alexandra M., I heard they will make people pay for boosters. Uh, Li Fong at The Intercept wrote a piece about a, a pharmaceutical board meeting, uh, or sorry, a stockholder meeting where the executives did talk about having people pay, that this was a um, big profit opportunity to get boosters out there on the market, because right now they would look bad making people pay for uh, vaccines that many people want to save their own lives. Yes, Chris H., the boosters are the cash cow for pharma. Uh, I'm going to take one more question. I'm just scrolling down for a good one. Um, so Brian Fouché, or Fouché, I don't know how to pronounce it, points out that Fauci just announced yesterday that a third jab is coming for all, not just immune compromised yesterday. Look, I'm having to, uh, I'm having to scroll too much, but thank you everyone for participating in this stream. This stream is going to be a sanctuary for me because of, uh, what YouTube is doing, uh, because of the algorithmic censorship, this tightening censorship regime. And so I'm glad you're part of it. And, you know, we're going to, keep coming back every week and maybe even more frequently with great content like we had today. So I'm going to be out soon. Peace.